there's a consequence if you cross a boundary. Yeah, and I think when you blur the lines where there's no boundaries, then what would happen if you have no locks or doors or windows in your house? Then it becomes an open house for animals to live in and strangers to be able to crash. So treating your life like a living house is a good analogy in my view for knowing who's trustworthy and they've got to earn the right to be able to have access to certain things about you. Hi guys, and welcome back to the Rate Active podcast. It's been such a pleasure to see everyone enjoying the recent episodes, and I'm so grateful for all of you tuning in. If you haven't already, make sure you hit subscribe so that you get the latest episodes as soon as they are released. This week, I'm sitting down with an entrepreneur, speaker, and the founder of Mentored Media and Social Kung Fu. Welcome to the show, Matt Purcell. Hey, thanks, Rach. It's good to be here. I'm so excited to have you on, actually, and I think this is by far one of the most fun interviews to prepare for because we're going to be talking about all things personal branding and communication and social media. And I think all of these things, to be honest, even if you don't specifically run a business, many of us have a presence on social media, and this is all really relevant in today's culture and landscape. So I'm really excited to get to know you a little bit more as a person as well. So I'm curious to know how your childhood and experiences in your early years, how they have shaped you. Because listening to your story, I'm sure many people, including myself, can relate to kind of going through a family breakup. And, you know, when you're young, it has a very distinct impact on how you form as a person and who you become as an adult. So can you take me back to what happened during those earlier years with your family and how you think that that has shaped who you are today? Mm. Well, I knew I was very different ever since I looked in the mirror and recognized my features because I'm, you know, look, look at me, I look like Jackie Chan's son versus my people <laughs> look very different. Mm. They look like they're Bill Clinton and Hillary. They look they're Caucasian. And so when I was old enough to understand, I thought maybe they kidnapped me. <laughs> and they, they quickly told me that I was adopted. And that made a lot of sense. My mum from Australia couldn't have kids naturally. So she and my dad from Australia went through the whole process of adoption, which international adoption is quite a quite quite a crazy amount of hurdles. You need to jump over, you need to have a house, have a certain amount of money, money in the bank, you need to go to conferences and have site checks. Versus if you have a child naturally, you know, with your your partner or who or somebody, you don't have to have any of those boxes ticked really so i feel very wanted in that in a lot of senses from that and my sister mm-hmm. looks like me but she's from taiwan and it didn't really bother me at all until i was about six years old and my mom and dad sat us down and said what we're about to tell you isn't going to change the way we loved you and and they said that we're going to separate and there's going to be another woman in your dad's life and i was not shielded by the story of the adult themes of the politics that went down there. It was quite an awful and traumatic experience. Around that time, I went to a new school as well. And that's when I became subject of huge bullying from several year six kids. I was one of three ethnic kids in our school. So that was racism was a easy thing to be picked on about and my height as well. So I'm a I'm still a cute size, five foot six or something, five seven of <laughs> 
Um, a soft seven, soft eight out of ten. If I'm wearing my suit, anyway. And uh, <laughs> yeah, so that was that was an ease. That, that was very big contrast between where I, what I looked like, versus what I was like on the inside in school. And that that separation really caused a lot of identity problems as a young kid. Mm, yeah, and how do you think that that has changed the way that you maybe approach the world? Because I mean. Because I, I went through something similar as well. My parents separated. And I think as a kid, it's quite, it is, it's the the biggest, most traumatic thing that happens to you, you know, when you're young and you don't have necessarily the coping skills to deal with that kind of thing, especially when you're, like you were saying, you're privileged to adult, the adult circumstances. How do you think that that has informed how you approach the world now? Well, I think from the insecurity of my parents splitting up I went into myself so I went through phases of lashing out and also like physically at, at, and was in trouble at school for for anger so I quickly found out that like later on in life that anger is a secondary emotion to a lot of psychologists there's got to be something that triggers anger and I think a lot of people struggle with anger I struggled with anger for many years because I had not dealt with the hurt that had caused the anger. So in a lot of ways, hurt produces anger. So if you're angry, you got to ask yourself, what am I hurt? Where's the pin that's poking into my my mind? And it was to do with my parents and it was to do with being bullied and it was to do with this adoption identity. So I was lost from a young age, but I thought very deeply about things and I found myself trying to do things to prove subconsciously that I was worthy or loved. Mm. And I think that's what drives a lot of us without knowing. A lot of adoptees have this and people who've gone through traumatic experiences may, you know, may relate to this, but we may be subconsciously driven for approval or for the the lack of attention or or love we didn't receive as children. So I, I did find myself acting up to get approval or to get attention or trying to achieve in my teenage years in the in the in the hope that I would be worthy enough of love. Mm. I think that that's universal though and I think it depends on the I mean obviously everyone's had different experiences growing up but at the base level of it all aren't we all just wanting to be loved and feel worthy and feel good enough? I think you know that's something that we as humans experience all to varying degrees and it gets triggered by different different contexts that we've experienced in our lives. So I think that's a really great realisation to even know that for yourself, you know, and, and really come to that point of understanding. It's like being, it's like rich, riches, right? A lot of people could say, I want to be rich. And there's many ways that you can get there, meaning, meaning you can be an arsehole to get there. You can rip people off. You can do it the right way. You can do it, you, you know, borrow advice from other people. And same thing with love and attention. You you have two spectrums. You have the fight or flight with those things when you're going through traumatic experiences. So you can act up to get attention and love. And that may attract a certain, you might provide a certain security to other people by being that voice or being that aggression or that energy in the room and rewarded for that or, or the other way around. So it's interesting how we seek to feel the need. You're just touching on a human need. And we all have them. It's just what vehicle or what action are we believing that will give us that? 
Yeah, Tony Robbins talks about this actually quite a lot. The I think it's he's got the six human needs and, and love and connection is one of them. And like you're saying, the different vehicles through which we try to get that love and attention. And some of them are harmful to us, but still feed that need. And then some are more healthy ways that we can get that love and attention. But ultimately, that's what we're looking to in terms of the outcome. That's what we're really looking for. So you kind of touched on there this feeling of being lost whilst you're going through all these different things and being adopted, also having your parents separated and going through bullying. How are you able to create a sense of identity for yourself? Because even I think it's something regardless of these different, these are very unique experiences that you've had, but I think kids struggle just in general to create an identity when you're going through those years. So for you then, how was that for you? Because that must have been just navigating through all those different things that are quite unique experiences that maybe you didn't have peers to speak to about necessarily. How did you come to find who you are, who Matt Purcell is? Yeah, I think the first thing I came to do was just copy other people. And that's the simplest yeah. in form of imitation, like credibility through association or monkey see, monkey do. And that's what a lot of people do when they don't know who they are. Who you are is who you are in another way. So if you're trying to impress somebody, you will try to speak like them, look like them, wear what they wear. And that's in hope of an identity piece. Like when you put on as a kid a Spider-Man or Batman outfit, you're putting on an identity and acting like that for that time and that's what I did for many years until I thank God for my mum who saw how troubled I was and put me in touch against my own will so to speak this is what good parents do they there's a difference between being a friend to your kid and being a parent to your kid being a parent involves yeah. well listen I'm I'm gonna you're gonna eat your vegetables even if you don't t- like think it's tasty then you're gonna go see a mentor Matt even though you think it's boring and that really changed the game for me. It was getting around a new group. The quickest way to be able to change your state or to be able to change your values is to just change your environment. And that's what my mum forced me to do. Mm. So she put me into this um, this youth group, which I had been exposed to guys that are 18, girls who are 18 when I was 12, and they were talented, they were cool, they had all the, the aesthetics that I thought was appealing, but they had different values. Are they... They, they spoke, they actually valued guys my age and they involved me and that got me involved in the music, which was a great vehicle for me. It was the first way I could process my feelings was through creativity, which makes a lot of sense to where I'm at yeah. now. I, I didn't know that I would be good at creating stuff until you know, I was shown that that was an option. And I believe that I was very naturally talented at understanding patterns, pattern recognition in creative land. So I could, when I, when I started learning theory and a little bit of guitar, for example, I could hear a song on the radio and know what key it was in or a movie and know yeah, how to wow. recreate that in theory or to be able to take the parts of a song and actually transfer it to other songs. And I thought that was normal. But in essence, a lot of people leave mm. what they learn in the exercise that they've learned it in and not have transferable ability. And that's what I think, my gift has been partly with what I do now is I'm able to transfer. I think there's an old philosophical quote that says, um, from one thing, use 10,000 times. Or from one thing, learn one thing and use it 10,000 times. So just use it once for that one utility, that one exercise. 
So it's that pattern recognition and being able to translate that into other contexts essentially and, and use mm. it in that way. Yeah. Yeah. That's really, really cool. So, you know, you're a personal branding expert and with the dominance, I think, of social media these days, it's hugely important. And that's whether you run a business or you just have some sort of social media presence. So firstly, for people listening, why is personal branding so important? Because I, th- I think a lot of people might not think that it's really relevant for them because they don't run a, a business per se. But what? why is it so important for, for people? Well, I'll sum up what personal branding is in a sentence. It's your professional image, credibility and visibility in the marketplace. Right. So the key thing is this when we all go for a job, it doesn't matter, like you said, if you're a business owner or an employee or you're wanting to have a career, you're gonna have to pitch yourself. If you want to go for a job, you got it starts with the resume. And the resume is a marketing document. And you don't put you, all your life on your resume. Like you don't go, Oh yeah, I went to Thailand last year for no reason. Like <laughs> it's <laughs> curated. And curating is tactical and it's strategic. So you have to curate your resume so that you put your best message forward so that you have the best chance of being the relevant pick for that person. And that's what personal branding is all about. That's really, really, really disheartening when you're a qualified, you're a competent worker, but there are other people that get the job ahead of you. That's because they have a better brand than you, meaning they're more visible than you. Remember what the definition was. There's visibility and credibility and your reputation in the marketplace. So most of us that are talented and are good, that we don't exist. You're invisible. And that's just awful. Like to put it plainly, like we all know like a talented person who should be on the voice or should be on this on a big stage because we know they're good, but they did become the world's best kept secret. So branding is not just a vanity metric, it's survival now. Personal branding, surviving. and it doesn't matter if you're dating out on the scene or not. Too, you're, you've got a profile. <laughs> you've got you've got touch points and digital profile. Like what people could search for you and be like, well, what have you actually strategically put up there to put your best self forward for any context? It doesn't have to be branding; it can be dating as well. Yes, I think that's. I mean, a lot of I hear a lot of stories about. Oh, you need to take better photos for your, you know, de- I've never been on a dating app. So I just hear this from my girlfriends. And so they're talking about the different photos and you shouldn't put certain photos up. And if they see a certain photo by a guy, then it's a bit of a red flag. So it's all about, like you were saying, curating this this message in a way and presenting yourself in the best light. So let's break down what a personal brand actually is, because I've heard you kind of talk about this a little bit, and there's sort of a few different um, sections here, skills, experience, personality, know-how, that kind of thing. How do all of these things come together to sort of like create this personal brand? Because I think also, I think the, the word personal brand can get a little bit intimidating for a lot of people, especially if you're not accustomed to talking about marketing in particular or haven't got that framework. So can we kind of break down how it sort of comes together to create your personal brand? Yeah, there's five pillars to personal branding. So the first P is pitch. So you need to know what your niche is, what your story is that is relevant to your niche. What I mean by niche is your, your industry you're in isn't a niche. Like it's the industry you're in. So if you're in the fitness industry, that's one industry you're in. But niching down is who are you, who's your audience? So it could be the fitness industry for mothers who have just had new mums who are on a particular diet, like a vegan diet. I'm very niche there. Right? Mm. And what's my story that 
is re- relevant to that niche. And could I say in one sentence that I am the entrepreneur for founders who want to create a successful personal brand? Can you say the for and who? You are the fitness person for women who have just had babies that want to lose weight in 12 weeks. Like that is really, really specific and really yeah. important. So get clear on your pitch because when you go to the second P, which is publishing, you have to publish what that niche is about and you start publishing your story. You start publishing things that are relevant to that niche. And the work you've done to find your story is what connects people. That's that personal part of personal brand is that you're not, you want to humanize as much as possible. I'm in marketing and branding. So it's really easy as an entrepreneur to dehumanize everyone. You know, women who are 35 to 45 who live in 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 Bondi Beach, who, it's just like there's no face to that. Yeah. See people as numbers and as that. So humanize the situation. Like publishing involves speaking to the audience that you're aiming for and, and creating content. And what content does is it creates an audience. So the goal, the ROI of publishing is an audience that fits that niche, right? And then third P is start productizing. Productizing could be a course. It could be an ebook. It's something and it's an invitation that your audience that you've now built can be part of and be transformed by, you know, have more buy-in. And that starts monetizing the personal brand. Then the fourth P is profile. So how do we rise... How do you rise above the noise of other people that are in your industry? That could be through PR. That could be through third podcasts like this. We a whole bunch of different third parties that get your profile reason. So they might be doing specific campaigns around that industry or around the, your audience. And you're, yeah. you're now looking at your social media as its, as its own news outlet. Like our Instagrams and our TikToks and all that stuff, they're all competing now with what MTV was. We're all based. People follow you and they vote if they like you or not. Even if you like something, they might say it's shit. And they're right. So they might Mm. follow you or they might follow someone else. So raising your profile is really important to be able to be approachable and and ultimately for the fifth P, which is to set you up for partnerships. So partnerships is the fifth P. So the five P's are you got to know your pitch about yourself. You've got to be able to publish. You've got to productize once you build an audience. You've got to build your profile. And then you've got to, it sets you up to be in partnerships with brands, with the companies that you own. So I own, I own companies. And my, the thing I love about personal branding for me as a business owner is that I can be a shareholder of several businesses, but no one's a shareholder of me. Mm. So it gives me an arm stretch length away from things to be able to be open to other opportunities. Yeah. yeah, and you can kind of move through different things as you like, different opportunities as you like, I guess, you know, and being, without being stuck into one particular business or direction. Yeah, I really like that too. That's a really great breakdown. So the five Ps, we'll pop that up in the show notes as well so that people have that as well. But you mentioned there this idea between credibility and being relevant or relativity and you need to actually be both credible and relevant. So let's unpack this because what does it mean to be credible? What does it mean to be relevant? And what is this sweet spot that is in between the two? Mm. Because that's really important, isn't it? Yeah, it is. So you can be credible, but not relevant. And you can be relevant without being credible. So you can go on maps and be super relevant and get 100,000 followers, but you're not respected. 
you may not be respected for very long because relevance, I believe, craves credibility. One of the great examples of someone using their relevance very well is the inspired unemployed boys. Ladies doing fun videos, built this massive audience. I'm sure it was a great surprise even to them. But what is the future of that just alone? How are are they just going to, is the followers going to pay their mortgage? No, they have to desperately, like I said, with the the prof, the the framework of God, build it to a point where they can partner with something else so it's sustainable. So what they did was they obviously partnered with the beer company, Good Beer, and it's now the fastest growing beer company in the world. So they now the beer company gives them credibility and they give the beer company relevance. You can be credible but not relevant. So you could be a celebrity that was big in the 90s but you are interesting and you, you're respected for that but you're invisible now. No one's wanting you anymore. And that's totally cool. If you want to retire, don't need to be relevant anymore. Just live off the, the fruits of your labor and be a person in time. And I think the sweet spot is if you want to grow – the smartest business people I work with, no matter how old they are, they know the importance of relevance if they're credible because that brings the – that keeps you alive. It keeps you totally front of mind. And I think um, that's the key. So the key question is credibility is built over time, over like awards you win, for example, uh, businesses you build. You could be credible and not – you could be credible meaning – there's credit. I got. I got to just address something here, Rachel. I haven't said this before, but you know, my followers don't pay my rent, right? Mm. The most credible business people I know didn't need their social media followers to be able to be where they are necessarily. Some of the best business entrepreneur influences they don't rely on that. They've got a real tangible thing that gives them that security. So yes. real-world credibility. There's real-world credibility where you could be absolutely have no followers on social media, but in your industry be really big and respected. Yes. So there's real-world credibility where you can actually call someone up on the phone and be like, yep, I need a favor. Can I Can I get this done? So there's, there's that, those types of levels. But I believe you can build both up. That's the whole plan of my process is you can build your credibility and you can work on your relevance, which is if I look at social media, that shows how relevant you are. If you look on look on Google, that shows how credible you are from a very first big first glance. Yeah, macro perspective, and I think Gary V and Alex Hamozzi talk. They both talk about this quite a lot in terms of they don't need in terms of entrep- in the entrepreneur space. Those big influences in that space haven't needed their social media following to for their for their income. They've got their businesses that they they run and that's where their credibility comes from and then they've built up social media as a separate piece to that which but it all feeds in together and so to have the both of them is is a really that's the that's a place you want to be that sweet spot. Mm. So yeah, I think that's a really great thing to remember I think as well for people listening who are trying to build up that social media but then also working, you know, long term on that credibility as well and making sure that you've got the goods basically to back it up what you're what you're trying to say as well yeah so if you look at nike a really great brand they work with athletes a lot so nike gives credibility to athletes athletes gives relevance to nike so nike doesn't give relevance nike gives credibility yeah 
Yeah. It's so it's so interesting to think about it that way. And I think it's it's uh, such a good point to remember when you're trying to build your personal brand. Now, you talked a little bit there about curation. And I think this in relation to authenticity is something that sometimes may get a bit of a misperception about what that actually means. Because I think when you talk about curation, perhaps people might be thinking that, oh, well, that means that, you know, you're not really showing everything and therefore that means that you're not really being authentic. So can you explain your take on this? Because I think this is something that people might face when sharing things on social media as well, is how much do they share and maintaining a level of privacy whilst still being authentic? Yeah, I think that people think if you're curating your content, that means you're inauthentic, which means that you're telling fibs and you're yeah. fabricating things. And it's like, oh, it's just curated. Then you hear phrases like that. Oh, it's a curated thing, Instagram. You don't know what's going on. Yeah. Listen, there's a difference between having a private life and showing your personal personality. So I believe that you can show your personality without revealing your private life. So, I mean, let's just be a bit crude for a second. There's, there's a thing called a private part, right? We've got private parts. Mm. You know, we have a mm. privacy in our houses. So there's certain things that you can insinuate that need protecting because if you allow people you don't trust in to be able to see those things or experience those things, you leave yourself very vulnerable and people that you love very vulnerable as well. So what's happened with social media now is that people don't have any guidelines at all between what's private and what's just your personality. And I believe yeah. that you should have you should share your personality and protect your private life. So I'm I'm really big advocate against mum vloggers showing their kids. Yeah, right. Yeah, so I, I might get a lot of hate for that, but you gotta I just ask you guys a question like what benefit do you get from posting your kids online to complete mm. strangers? I'm not talking about closed groups of trustworthy people. I'm saying why are you thinking that the internet is a safe place to put your kids on? And secondly, why are you doing it? Is it to be able to, is it a monetary benefit? Is it a commercial benefit? Is it a self-esteem thing so you're seen as a mum, right? Do you think the internet's a safe place? No, I don't think it's a safe place for that. And there's going to be backlash and there already is backlash as you can find it online where kids now are, are of age saying, you weren't the mum that you said you were on the vlogs. Mm. I'm now getting flipping bullied at school because of all those stupid things and pranks you did to me, um, which was for your entertainment. And for engagement. Now I'm getting picked on for that. So yeah. that's just one example of private versus personal. So you might be like, well, Matt's a bit harsh. I'll, I'll, kids are my value. Well, personality-wise, you can share about parenthood without showing your kids. You can yeah. you can give lessons and tips and thoughts of your own childhood and how you were raised and how now you're thinking about raising your own kids without having to reveal where you live, you know, the kids' faces and all that stuff. If you want to share it, put it in a closed group. So I'm challenging, I use that as an analogy to say there are topics in your life which should remain private amongst your closed group. It should be like the privacy of your own home. You don't just invite everyone to your house. Treat your life yeah. like a living house and ask yourself yeah. what things, if they were exposed to people that are strangers, could be could leave you at risk. So personality versus private life, I think. You need to protect, know what's private and know what you can use for your personality and your personal brand. Yeah, I've actually never, I don't think I've ever really heard anyone speak about that so much in terms of 
authenticity and showing your personality and really making that distinction between your private life as well. Because I guess so much of what we see, especially people who are sharing a lot online, is we do see a lot of their private lives online. And so it almost becomes normalized in that way that that you expect people to be showing their private lives. So I really like that distinction. And and it's it's for you to make that decision about yourself, about what are you willing to show and what do you want to protect and keep and, you know, sort of protect your loved ones and whatnot of, of what you're going to show of, of their lives and their faces and all those kinds of things on social media. Mm. I really like that. It's, it's, almost, it's, it's about boundary setting really, isn't it? Mm. Setting boundaries for yourself and, and making sure that you adhere to them. Yeah. And people only know what you tell them, Rach. Like that's, yeah. that's the thing. And I think you're right. It is like, that's a well put thing. Like it is personal boundaries. And it's showing that a boundary is there's a consequence if you cross a boundary, yeah. And yeah. I think when you blur the lines where there's no boundaries, then what would happen if you have no locks or doors or windows in your house? Then it becomes an open house for animals to live in and strangers to be able to crash. So yeah. treating your life like a living house is a good analogy in my view for knowing who's trustworthy and they've got to earn the right to be able to have access to certain things about you. Yeah. I mean, I really agree with that. I'm I'm a very private person with my socials too, and I think I think people do find it weird because you don't share certain parts of your life, but I I may have made that very distinct decision to not show certain parts of my personal life. And I think, yeah, it's that's what it is. It's about protecting those parts of your life that you don't want everyone to have access to. And I think Making the conscious decision, I think, is the point here that we're talking about as well. Is like not just being kind of taken with what you think you should just post all these things, but just really thinking about what you actually are comfortable posting and and showing people. And what yeah. benefit we get? So I respect that about you. So that I'm the same. I will. I'll be the first to say that I use my socials for commercial benefit. Mm. That's all it's for. I've got closed groups where I share more personal things in, but. Yeah, I know that the benefit I get from posting is to build a personal brand for commercial gain. Yeah. If as long as it's 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 clear that and there's that's that's totally good. In my view, it's 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 expectations up front. Yeah. Set the intention for what you're using your social media for and then and then curate around that to to be able to present what it is that you want to present. Yeah. And yet you're using it then rather than it using you. Yes. And that's so good. You need to be in an empowered state because, you know, social media is just so prevalent, I think. And we never got to, I mean, you know, we just, we didn't grow up with it. So it's really important to, to remember these kinds of things. Now, just touching on millennials there, because I think there is a distinct difference in the way that people approach social media. And there's a lot of people in the millennial generation that we didn't grow up with it. It's not necessarily something that we are naturally accustomed to and so there's a lot of learning around it and how to use the platforms and there might be this idea of it's a bit of a self-promotion thing and people kind of get a little bit scared about putting things out there and they sort of see it in a negative way that can be a perception of it so if someone is feeling a block around putting themselves out there if showing their personality on social media what are your suggestions for overcoming that if they do want to create an authentic personal brand where they're showing their personality but there's a fear about kind of showing that in a public arena you know yeah i think i always try and reverse engineer as much as i can what's your goal 
And I have five levels of visibility, I guess, with personal branding. And one is the in-house expert. The in-house expert is someone that is only really known within the four walls of their business. And they could have studied a PhD for all I know to get there. They would have worked hard to get there. But if you want, if your ambition and goal is above that level, then you go to the local hero, which is the local hero is someone in your suburb or someone who's you might be starting to do little talks in your business breakfasts or doing charity events, something outside the four walls. You're starting to do some more marketing locally of yourself or your business. Third thing is regional, so it could be the state of, it could be Melbourne, you know, as as the regional leader of that of your particular niche. Then as a micro celebrity, so someone who's relatively like a celebrity within real estate or celebrity within marketing and branding, celebrity, et cetera. And the last one is household name. So Gordon Ramsay or Roger Federer. Now, if your goal is to have a, be a local hero, then you've got to ask yourself, what is the input that I need to put in in order to be able to get to that level? And what benefit will I get or do I believe I'll get if I'm a local hero? The benefits are people start knowing who you are, they're hearing your story, and they start requesting you for business or you for opportunities, not just the firm that you work in. All right. So there's that demand. So, but there are certain skills that you need to, you can't, it's just like any input and outputs, a very simple little science back thing where you're like, can I speak in front of a crowd? Is this going to require me to speak to groups of 20 or 30 people? Am I going to shit myself if I do that? <laughs> uh, so there might be some media training you need. There might be some public speaking courses in it. So building in yourself is, is a requirement to be able to get more visible. And ask yourself the question, like if you were just a business, like if you took the – the, if you just uh, looked at yourself as an entity for a second, seriously, if your goal is to, to do, be successful – no brand that you respect that you know of is just being found organically by even word of mouth is because someone has seen them your brand multiple times. Mm. So you can't you, you can't just blame people for playing the game right, right? You just you you've got to know that the game requires a certain rules and you need to train a certain amount to be able to get the goal. So in a lot of sense, that's a logical approach, but imposter syndrome is a real thing in the, um, there's something called, I'm going to get it wrong, something Drucker effect, where you see a lot of young people, they experience something new, like a new skill or they get a new job and they have this exponential amount of confidence, like maybe overconfidence it seems like. Mm. It's because they're getting really a lot of feedback straight away. So it's created this false sense. The longer you are around, the more you realise what you don't know and that's what make, most people think they're in. They're like, oh, I'm no good because... Oh, I've got so much further to go. And the whole point of this, Kent, there's something Drucker effect is that confidence, it generally means that if you've done something very long for a very long time and you're doubting it and you're aware of what you don't know, it probably shows that you're ready to actually step out because you're confident enough to be able to speak on the subject versus being this cocky, being around for one second, I've done one thing, I, I scored a goal in, in, in with one kick, that's all I've done in my career. Yeah. year old life coach. <laughs> There's so many of them on TikTok, all these different coaches that are like 15. <laughs> so if you feel like you're yeah. not moving, you've been around for years, you probably, it's a good chance that you are. And you've got to ask yourself, what level do I want to go at? 
And what's the requirement for that? And find a process, find a person who would have the process for you to be able to learn and to grow incrementally. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. And that's a real it is a very logical, practical approach to it because yes, confidence is this is something that I was going to chat to you about as well, developing confidence. And there's a lot of people that I that I hear speak about confidence that it is a skill rather than something we're just born with. And I think that distinction often gets overlooked. People think that, oh, they see a confident person or they're they're on social media and that's just something that they naturally do and they're just confident. But like you're saying, it is a skill that you can build up and developed over time. It's just something that you you are able to do more easily with less friction to put yourself out there. So yeah, that's a really great way to approach it. Yeah, yeah. Confidence, there's situational confidence and core confidence. So situational confidence is when you're only confident in the environment that you seem to thrive in. So at school, you might be situationally confident when because you're you got evidence to show that you got good marks and you you can put your hand up and speak up. But in a party situation, you might be socially weird and you're like mm. no confidence because you're not in the classroom. Core confidence is when you are able to transfer all the relevant things into an area. So it doesn't matter. You can't just leave it in the classroom. You take it everywhere you go. And I think you get confidence from two things, generally speaking, is through exposure and through evidence. So exposure enough to something is will create a familiarity. You know, like if, I, if I'm exposed to the stage when I was back playing music, I was on. I was playing in church stages for when I was fourteen in front of three hundred people every Sunday. So when I so when I was speaking public public speaking, that exposure to the fear of crowds really didn't affect me that bad. And then evidence is the other thing for confidence. Like if I know I've done something well, time and time and time and time again, just like an old Bible story, David and Goliath. David was challenged to kill a big giant. And the king offered him his sword, the best shield, the best armor. But David said, I've killed tigers, bears, and wolves with my slingshot. So I'm going to use what I know. And he killed Goliath Mm. with a slingshot. So that comes from, competence comes from evidence. Yeah. Yeah. It's good to remember exposure and evidence and just being exposed to the same thing. Of of course, when you start anything new, I feel like you're, you're going to be a little bit uh, trepidatious around it, but it's just that repetition and practice almost in a way to normalize the situation or the those feelings that you can bring in and translate to other contexts as well. Like you, you, yeah, you really like up with Pilates or with fitness and a whole bunch of sport, you know, like muscle memory, you know, mm. like that that all comes from even martial arts. It's um, it's why would you throw the same punch? I think Bruce Lee said, I don't fear the man who knows a thousand kicks, but the man who practiced one kick a thousand times. Yes. Yeah, that's a really great one. It's it's just gaining that exposure over and over and over again and developing that confidence, developing that that confidence muscle is how you could probably put it as well. Mm. Yeah, so the other piece of your work, you obviously run social kung fu and this is really interesting to me. This is all about verbal self-defense and I know I'm not alone when I say I've, you know, you've, you've spoken about your experience with bullying. I was bullied when I was growing up as well, definitely towards the end of high school. And I think it's, I think most people have, to be honest, it's just that it's probably not spoken about as much. And I think it's something that we're not taught to deal with definitely when we're younger, but even as adults, 
you know, I think it's really important to learn how to deal with different personalities and verbal challenges that we may come across in our social interactions or a variety of different contexts in our lives. And also now with social media, right? There's a lot of this tro- social media trolling, digital bullying, all of these kinds of things that people are experiencing. And you talk about the art of questioning and developing this kind of Kung Fu mastery with our words, which I really love. So let's unpack this. Can we go through the different types of verbal challenges that we might face in our social interactions? Because this is, uh, I mean, we encounter people all the time and this happens in our day-to-day life, whether you are at school or you're at work or, you know, in a gym or wherever it is, mm. all these kinds of things can happen. So what, what are the different types of verbal challenges that we most commonly will face? The most prominent form of abuse today statistically isn't kicks or punches. It's actually words. It's verbal abuse. So whether it be in person or cyber, they're part of the same coin because it uses linguistics. It uses words, typing or talking. And the question really I've been asking is, is this like how do you defend yourself against un, like baseless claims or rumours and gossip or or people just saying hurtful things to you. And our natural response could be either be like Will Smith and jump on stage and slap them physically. It doesn't all yes. work. You probably get a jail be a whole bunch of things. Try and do that at work to your boss. Mm. And then, or be a wimp, meaning you are, your strategy is, which isn't a real strategy, is hope. You're hoping that those people just see you invisibly that day. They don't see you at all. And so people change jobs, people leave schools because of this. So they're living out of fear. So I asked myself the question after helping youth for, for many, many, many years in the trenches, like what, what are you, what's your response to this stuff? And they'll say, I swear back at them, I push them, I hope they're for the best. The middle ground is actually questioning. What questions do is it's a verbal block. It's a verbal yeah. kick. And that's what social kung fu is all about. What what is a verbal push, and what how do we verbally defend ourselves against claims? And everyone can make a claim about anyone. You can make a claim about me right now. I can make a claim about you right now, and I could call the police on you right now and say, "Hey, Rachel did this thing to me." They're not going to come and arrest you because they are going to ask me questions about what evidence I have about that. So I teach parents, I teach students this technique on how to ask questions naturally rather than have the fight or flight response. That's the first belt we teach in, in social Kung Fu. So the first punch could be, what do you mean by that? So we do, we, we usually do like a combination physically and say the words as well with it. And yeah. I'll, I'll share it. There's a three punch combo, which blocks rumors of gossip is what do you mean by that? So someone's saying, Hey, Rach, did you hear about so-and-so? She looked, filthy in that dress the other night and it's like real mean like what do you mean by that so what that does is it puts the pressure back on the person mm. and like and then the pressure's on them so like oh well i saw a post on social media it's like and then the second one is can you give me some proof it's like well can you do you know if it was photoshop do you know what what do you what do you got what's your your motivation mm-hmm. And there's like, okay, well, and it's back on them to be able to gather information. And by this point, sometimes they're tying the noose around their own neck because they're like, oh, oh a lot of people, it becomes apparent if they don't know what they're talking about. Yeah. And the third punch is how do you know it's true? How, how do you know personally something is true? So this is a really great combo for anyone with gossip or someone who's got a lot of opinions. So what do you mean by that? Oh, give me the source for that. How do you know it's true? Mm-hmm. And a gentle label 
is it seems like there's more than meets the eye with it. It seems like you got something against so-and-so. I didn't say you did. I'm just saying it seems like you do. Yes. Which always puts it back on the person. So in law, generally speaking, whoever makes a claim has to prove it. But we act like we're guilty. A lot of people, when someone say you did something, you did that, we act guilty when we're really innocent. Mm. The burden of proof in law is on the person who makes the claim, not on the person who's accused. Mm. You're innocent until proven guilty. But people act guilty. Like, no, 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 I didn't do that. Don't do that. And they, they look like they're the victim. Yeah. Questions help put that back on to the person. It's like, hey, it's not on me to prove myself innocent. It's actually up to you. you. You've got to prove yeah. Yeah. And you've said before, I've, I've heard you say this, that you're approaching these kind of challenging situations like being a lawyer. So you're looking at the facts and kind of questioning, like you were saying, those claims that that person is making. And the other thing I've heard you say, which I thought was really interesting, was that when you sort of are in the moment, it's almost like if, if someone says something about us, it's almost it's almost shocking when we hear that somebody doesn't like us or, or, or it's shocking that, that somebody doesn't like something about how we look or it's shocking about that they don't like or agree with our opinion that we, that we freeze. And I find that so interesting because it, it is so, it's true, right? That's the natural, your, your natural thought pattern is to go, why doesn't that person agree with, with what I'm saying or, or find me to look a certain way or whatever it is. It's almost like we have this expectation of how other people will behave. Mm. So it's almost like taking the questioning takes that power back instead of trying to get somebody else to do something. It's just asking them questions about their own their own approach and their own behaviour. So I think it's a really yeah. empowering position, I guess, is, is the best way to put it. It is. And, and that's what we touch on in social kung fu is how people throw the word around resilient a lot and I, I get really skeptical on buzzwords when they're ill-defined and they're used over the top and I think resilience is a great thing practically how I teach people to be resilient is to be self-aware of everything about your detail so you and I are both uh, are you you've got Asian heritage yes I do what's your heritage Chinese Singaporean yeah so yeah. we're both so that's something we should be aware of and then our height our weight um, and I, I go to the details of self-rating yourself out of 10 as physically attractive. So uh, I ask students, it's very uncomfortable for students, how would you rate yourself on a scale of 1 to 10 uh, just with your phys- physical appearance? And you know, a lot of people say 3 or 4. You know, and so you fill out you know, a box about all your physical traits. Then it goes to your interests. Are you into sport? Are you into yoga? Are you into food? What kind of things are you into? Are you a gamer? Then it goes into your past and your history. What are the things you've done? What are your marks doing? Like, what are you, it's like a little bio about yourself. And it goes into beliefs and values. So it goes from the very easily seen to the, the big invisible stuff. Then you write all that out and you rate yourself. Then you attack it like a bully. Yeah, right. But what could people call you for having Asian heritage? They could call you a whole bunch of racist names. Yeah. They could call you for your weight your height, your fashion sense, we are all easy targets. Mm. So we go back over and we we pull out what are the obvious easy targets about me. And then I go back over one more time as a fair judge. So I believe we are all judges. Every single one of us, you're a judge, I'm a judge, everyone listening is a judge. The question isn't that you make judgments of people. The question is, 
are you a fair judge? Mm. And a judge, well, I remember going to court as kids' mentors because I didn't have fathers and juvie, like they were heading to juvie. And the judge didn't sit there and go, you look stinky, you haven't had a shower, I don't like you, you're going to juvie, son. He has to use the full force of the law to be able to weigh things up. And I don't believe that we assess what law we judge each other through. Mm. It's cultural, it's societal, it's historical. Like if you were a medieval woman, like in the medieval times, if you were large in size, you were considered beautiful because it showed you affluent. Versus today, what is the law of beauty? What is the, the current cultural standards for this? And that's what law we seem to judge each other through. So if I'm privy to that and I can look at my details and I can attack myself and I can go back over and ask myself, if I'm five foot six and Asian, is that going to be a barrier for success in my career? No. Cool. Is that going to be a barrier to be a partner to someone one day? Nah. You know, is that someone's preference? Someone might not like shorter guys or not. Sure. That doesn't matter. So it becomes I now accept myself, which protects myself from obvious attack. And that's how I see resilience being built. Mm. Oh, I really like that. It, it does give a really great practical way of discerning some differences about your own perceptions as well. I think self, you touched on self-awareness there. I really think that that's almost the key of everything. It underpins everything. That if you understand yourself and how you actually see the world and where you may be almost like wearing certain different tinted glasses in certain, you know, situations, like you were saying before, is it a cultural perception? Is it a societal perception? Where have we got these beliefs and thought, are they actually ours or it's something that we've been taught, et cetera, et cetera, and how we're viewing certain people and situations. I think that's amazingly insightful for us to know about ourselves, which is really, really great. Oh, I love that so much. All right. Well, I've got the hot three final questions for you. Okay. So these are the final three questions. I'm excited to hear what your answers are. What drives you? What drives me? It's a good question. What drives me at the moment is having a big, my, my definition of success right now is knowing when enough is enough. My, that's what's driving me at the moment is knowing when enough is enough. It's, it's, it's actually making some personal decisions in my life to know if I was offered any more money or opportunities. I can I can walk away from whatever numbers thrown at me because I know I've had enough. Mm. I want I want to be secure. That's what drives me. But it's not security with a certain infinity amount of numbers, income or, or attention. It's I'm on that journey at the moment. Going, I think I've found my number. I think I've found what I want to do for the next while, mm. and I can say no to everything else. Yeah, yeah, lovely. And I think it does change throughout your life as well, depending on what, what stage and season you're in. Next question is, if you had one regret or something in your life that you could redo or relive, what would it be and why? I wish I didn't break that kid's nose in school. Oh, did you? <laughs> yeah. Wow. I was in year seven and I was dared to throw an apple at someone's head. And I'm like, had that Jiminy Cricket moment where I was like, uh, no, nah, don't do it. And I was playing rip cricket at the time, so I was very good at throwing. They're like, yeah, I'll just do it and beat it ego. I threw it and smashed this kid in the face. Oh, and wow. Him. And thought I was super cool about it. And that guy's ever since, like, has ever been traumatized from it. So there's something I'm very, very regretful of mm-hmm. as, a, as a kid. So yeah. nothing 
yeah, that's just stupid things that I was a bully for a while. So I just that's where I've seen both sides of being the victim and being an asshole. Yeah, and I really regret that. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one good thing about look in hindsight, obviously, everything that we do, we can look back in hindsight and go, well, I can learn from that. I can learn from that that mistake. One last one was not buying an Audi at 19, um, a car, and ignoring all the advice from getting it checked and stuff because I just wanted a shiny car, young man, stupid um, story. And I bought it and six months later, the transmission broke on it. Oh, no. But just before I'd bought the car, my dad offered me a fairly decent car of his own for like really, really good deal. And I had these two options, look cool or have something sensible. And I went with look cool. It cost me more than I bought it for to replace the transmission. I'm like, regret this this very day. I posted that video on TikTok and it had a couple of thousand views. And I real I didn't realize that that happens to so many dudes. <laughs> I'm like, it's that's, the car is a reflection of their ego or something. Yeah. Well, I think yeah, that is. I think it is a, a common, a co- not so much with girls. I don't think. I feel. Yeah, that's a that's a really fascinating, interesting story. The final question I have for you is: What is the biggest lesson you have learned in your life so far? Ah, uh, thinkers need to do and doers need to think. Two spectrums, thinkers and doers. Doers, I was a doer. I've always been a doer. And I've had to really learn to think before diving in. I've di- I've di- dived headfirst into things because I'm a doer and snapped my neck. You know, like yeah. in my early 20s, I tried to do lots of things, startup businesses failed, uh, but just didn't ask the right questions. So I just didn't think enough. Mm. And and that the pain taught me you know, to ask questions about it versus I have close friends who are thinkers and they have some really good solutions to big problems, but they're collecting dust and they are still where they are when they told me that 10 years ago and they need to be more like me and I need to be more like them. Mm. And that's been, it's great to have verbal sparring partners or intellect. So there's this old Japanese martial arts principle that it's worth it, it's honorable to seek a worthy opponent to find someone who's formidable to like like in pokemon or all these uh, anime shows the character isn't always the most skilled but they're seeking out the better trainer or the better opponent because it does a few things it it put uh, it shows you where your limits are it shows you what your weaknesses and strengths are yeah and i think i am I'm really lucky. I'm not really lucky, actually. I, I'm really fortunate to have had good thinkers, which I've we've found it mutualistic to to spar, and they've been inspired by my doing, and I've been really inspired by their thinking. So it's helped me bring from here to here, and um, that's where the seat spot is. So thinkers need to do, and doers need to think. I like that a lot. I like that a lot because I do know people like like you said. You're always probably more leaning more towards one than the other. And the other will complement and almost, show, like you said, show you where your weaknesses are so you can kind of incorporate more of that into your own being and how you approach the world, 
really, really love that. So I've really loved this conversation, Matt. It's been so great. I feel like we, we got stuck into some really great topics and, and I've gotten to know you a lot better as well, which is really fun. So thank you so much for being on the show. It's been such a lovely chat. Kita, when you're doing races, it was really good. I appreciate it. You too. Now, where can people go to find more about what you do and your work? Because you've got so many different bits and pieces going on. Where can they go? So um, mattpersell.com, which will give you all the types of focus I'm doing at the moment. I'm just... We're about by the time this interview will be up, I I am the owner of Mentored Media, but we're actually changing to Q Media, so KYU Media, doing a rebrand very soon. So you can type in Mentored Media, but it will redirect you to Q Media, which we work with brands and and businesses, personal branding, and social kung fu is where my mission is to help a million students across Australia with this training. Yeah, amazing. I love that so much. So we'll pop all of those links up in the show notes, guys. So you make sure you check it out. Tell us what you loved and learned from this episode by leaving a rating and review over at Apple Podcasts. Also screenshot this episode, tag us and share it to your socials. Thank you again, Matt, so much for joining me. And thank you guys for listening. We'll catch you next time on the Rage Active Podcast. 